So today, I have the pleasure of talking to José Carlos Brito. Uh, he is one of the most experienced field people I know. Uh, he has driven all across the Sahara and the Sahel, chasing very unlikely animals, crocodiles, among many other things. Uh, I think you have done over 700 days in the Sahara and the Sahel trekking. Over 1,000. Over 1,000 now. Okay, well, your your biome is uh, a little bit behind. (laughs) But with over 100 uh, scientific papers on those topics. And you were funded by the National Science Foundation in Portugal, but also uh, ESAN, I saw, and National Geographic. Yes. So, And you've been in National Geographic covered, of course, with your work. So why are you going back all the time to the Sahara and the Sahel? What brings you there? Well, first of all, thank you very much for this invitation, uh, Harry. And uh, well, why why going to the deserts? Uh, why go to deserts uh, multiple times? Well, the first time I went to the desert, that caused me a huge impression. Uh, there's this saying that in the deserts uh, you can never be um, insensitive to desert, but either you love it or you hate it. And in my case, I loved it. The the wide open spaces. Uh, almost no limits, uh, and and that caused the uh, a sensation that I want to work here. I, I first visited the Sahara. I was doing the PhD at the time in in Portugal in a in a mountain area, and I was spending most of the days in a very narrow valley that I could only see some 100 meters in distance. How going to the Sahara? It was all oh, this is the, the wide open spaces. I want to work here, and as soon as I finished the PhD. I engaged in, in research in, in deserts. So for me, the biggest attraction is indeed the the, the, the wideness of the winds. Yeah, and you go in deep because you go for months at a time. You leave here, we see you drive off with the four-wheel drives, and then you don't return for several months. So what's that like? How, what's it like living out of a car for, for such a long time? Well, it's it's a challenge, first of all. Um, it's a challenge because uh, the the logistics it's complicated. Um, the in terms of of lodging, of food, of water, of fuel, there are several logistic challenges to be overcome in this kind of expeditions, and that is very attractive. At the same time, the the fact that it's complicated, that it's not easy, that there are many variables, many uncertainties, and and you and also another thing that you need to plan in advance. That you cannot just fly somewhere and just land and ride the car and then yeah. and, and being exactly the opposite makes it very attractive for, for me. Oh, hey, maybe you like the challenge and just <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so so practical things. You probably camp a lot outside or um, you, uh, depends on the countries that that we visit. Uh, but most of the work that I've done in in North Africa has been uh, in Mauritania. And the and the, the lodging is is almost non-existent, or only in the in the main cities. So if you want to do research, if you want to search for animals at night in mountains, there is absolutely no other possibility besides camping. It's not even a question of I I prefer to camp instead of being in a hotel. It's there is no other uh, possibility besides camping. And Mauritania is one of the more challenging countries in Sahara. I think yes. Well, the country is about two and a half times the size of France, and for a long time it contained only three paved roads. 
<laughs> in fact, in fact, as soon as you enter the country by rope, he would immediately eat if it finished the paved road. As soon, in fact, on trading road finishing. Yeah, it was very interesting. And that's also uh, reminds me the first time I went there, of course, that caused a huge impact because I had already some experience in Morocco. And uh, in Morocco, outside the paved roads, um, the tracks are, are marked uh, either with cars, uh, left pioneers, abandoned cars. And, and Morocco is rather stony. So, in fact, most of the people tend to drive more or less in the same way, in the same track. So, when I first arrived to Mauritania at the border, I was inquiring with local people that, hey, so the tracks here are well marked, like in Morocco, is it easy to find the routes and so on? And this guy looks at me, no, you do your own route. And that for me was, ah, this is marketable. Yeah, I'll worry about that. I tend to have that own route. Not marked, you have to find, you have to, of course, now we can beneficiate a lot from GPSs and the technology associated. Uh, but still, still, it's a challenge because you may have points in the GPS uh, separated by 50 kilometers and you have to find your way, navigate between dunes or rocks or, or whatever uh, and find your own way. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really a, a, a weird country, you know, Mardin, yeah. <laughs> And um, so I said in the introduction, you were chasing crocodiles, which seems like an unlikely thing to do in a desert. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. In fact, it's fascinating the, the, the occurrence of crocodiles in the sand because it's an aquatic animal. I'm not expecting it to be present in the desert. But that, in fact, that they are there and they are remnants of the past of, the, of, the, of a period during the Holocene about 4,000 years ago, when uh, the Sahara was, uh, was much more humid and covered by grasslands and lush vegetation. At the time, it contained also hippopotamus, lions, giraffes, elephants. And, and so afterwards, after those, um, after this period of the Vinsad, towards the present day, there, is, there was an increase in the aridity, so vegetation disappeared. Most of the big mammals extinct, got extinct by, by themselves. And crocodiles were able to, to strive in uh, very small bamboos located in mountains. Hmm. Uh, and, and so they became highly isolated in, in the mountains of the Sahara. With, uh, with a human increase of human activities, uh, unfortunately, they, they, they were shot because there were, of course, conflicts with humans. And they got extinct from most of the, most of the Sahara. And presently, they subsist all the in the white seagull population in Chad and in several populations in, in Mauritania. And you've been there in, in Chad and Mauritania? The Chad, unfortunately, I, I've been in Chad, but not in the, not in the place where in, the, in any of the mountains where there is an isolated population. Unfortunately, I was never there. But in Mauritania, yes, and when we started working there, crocodiles were known from some 20, about some 20 locations. Now uh, we've passed 120 locations. So, in fact, they are much more uh, common uh, than, than what was uh, previously thought. And this is a, a, a separate species of crocodile because our 40s are the normal. Uh, oh, uh, in fact, when we start working, um, it was considered the, the, this crocodile to be Cucuzuvilotic, the Nile crocodile, the Empico crocodile that we all know health. Yeah, that caused these this problems with the, well, they attack humans, of course. <laughs> uh, but, but then, um, 
some genetic work leaves by, by um, a team from the US and they uh, proved that the, these crocodiles in the side, in fact, it's a separate species. It's a Pumpelusu. And the, the common name now, it's uh, the West African crocodile. Okay. And it's much smaller. And, and it, uh, at the same time, it displays a behavior uh, very interesting that uh, is very shy. Hmm. Completely different from the Nile crocodile. We have no problems. <laughs> and the breast yield, not shy at all. And, uh, this one is very shy. Possibly this has been a key to survive in in environments that are highly um, affected by human activities. Because we think of deserts as places where there are no humans. Or, in other words, in deserts, humans uh, are only present where there is water. Yes, it's a key factor also for us. Yeah. And and so this creates immediately a conflict about the water usage in these lagoons between humans and crocodiles. Uh -huh. And so the fact that these crocodiles are, are much more shy and, and don't attack humans, in fact, uh, uh, it made possible their survival until the, the present day. In fact, that reminds me of another detail, that these crocodiles are the ones that were, it, this has been proved genetically, are the ones that have been modified by the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. Well, they were using these species of crocodile, not the Nile crocodile, as pet. That, and so they used it in gardens as pet. And then even uh, mummified them um, because they thought that they were sub creatures and so on. Maybe because they were shy. Exactly. That's an old. I, I see, I've never seen it live by my own, but I've seen a video uh, of a young kid in Burkina Faso uh, seated on top of one of these crocodiles, mm. uh, like, like if it was a bench. Okay. And in some villages, the crocodiles are kept as pets and they are fed by, by the local villagers with chickens and so on because they think that uh, it's a sacred animal and, uh, and so this allows the, uh, a peaceful play vista. Lucky crocodile. Sacred is an important city. <laughs> Amazing. I, I, so I remember a long time ago, you told me a story uh, in, from Mauritania. I'm not sure you want to tell the story here, but it was about um, a French person that you found uh, by the side of the road. Do you remember that one? By the side of the road with the, with a kind of broken doll? No, no he was he was lost for a long time. Apparently, this guy. Ah, um, well, he was not alive. That the dark dark paddock with the seagulls. Yeah. Well, with, um, the well, deserts are in harsh environments, and um, and um, they are very remote. And some areas, uh, if you venture alone in a vehicle, if the vehicle breaks down, in fact, that that causes a survival situation. So uh, while we were driving through one of these remote areas, uh, I saw at a distance some bones, and it's very typical to find the bones of of the dromedaries. So it's very very typical. And it was a very open, a very open uh, uh, landscape. So, of course, there is nothing in the landscape. You see some bones at the distance, and I drive, uh, I drove uh, uh, close to, to those bones. When when I was um, about to arrive there, I thought I had I understood that it was a human skeleton. So we stopped, we and we, we we went to check it out. I took the GPS coordinates and then sent uh, of those coordinates to the. Authorities in Mauritania. Later on, they went there to investigate what was going on. They found a second body, and oops, and uh, yes, it was a man and a woman. They found the bags, uh, uh, their bags, okay, uh, with the with the passports, 
And there were a couple of French that uh, disappeared in 1994, and we found them in 2008. Wow, okay. So they'd be lying there for 14 years, undiscovered in the middle of Mauritania. Yes. Yes. That's how long you can... Yes. Uh, With with the... Well, the clothes all stripped apart, all all the bits of remains of the clothes, and and then the body, the skeleton fully exposed to the elf. The second one, we had the the woman, we did not spot it immediately. Yes, we did not touch anything. Um, But it was covered with sand. Okay. It was covered with sand. Wow. That is very intense. (laughs) Make a bit more nervous about the state of your car when you're driving, I guess. Yeah. Yes, it came out of So, yes, there that, that are very, or there are a series of issues related to the vehicles. Of course, you want a single vehicle, you don't want a vehicle with electronics. Essentially, it's, a, it's almost a paradox, but the vehicles that are available uh, presently and that they are produced presently are totally unsuitable for, for driving in diazabit. Because of electronics, because of sensors, because all the wiring that is attached to the different parts. And then in vehicles these days, if there is a, a tiny uh, breakdown in the sensor immediately, or, or, or in some vehicles, the, the car will stop. And so this is not acceptable for a half. Right. Uh, and so in fact, we use all the old, old vehicles uh, without minimum electronics, uh, vehicles from the, up to the early 1990s. We all drop anything to make it a third. More recent than they can solve. They get more hard to find, I mean. Yes. We've had a series of breakdowns, of course. Oh. But luckily, in all situations, either we were able to solve the problem by our own, or within a reasonable amount of time, someone else passed uh, with the vehicle and, and, and helped solving, solving the problem. Okay, so there is some traffic. There is some traffic. We've been into areas where there was absolutely no traffic, but in those cases, we always go with two cars. Okay. Uh, when it's to go really remote, we take always a minimum of two cars exactly because of, the, of, this, uh, of these issues. Uh, and for, uh, for that seems sensible. Have you ever had a, a situation where you thought, I'm not going to get out of this? or? Uh, yes, but uh, but uh, in Morocco, and what? So, some five or six kilometers from the village where it was a, it dropped its life, you learn. And even it was a, a which is a, a, a depression, a saline depression in the landscape. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that it was dry, you looked dry, but it wasn't. And we took 36 hours to take the car out. Ooh, it took 36 hours with the help of Moroccans. To push, dig, push, dig, and then like a tow truck uh, went there. Uh, it was what some, we were almost exiting the lagoon, almost. We were like some 70, 80 meters from the shore of the lagoon. And then the tow truck came to the shore and then he uh, set up a series of, of uh, um, slicks to, to, to push the car. But they were all and kept, kept all breaking. And then so a lot of time to fight to recover the car. Wow. <laughs> Six hours to cover 70 meter. Yes. Directly, wow. Okay. <laughs> and um, so you go chasing crocodiles, snakes, lizards, uh, anything else? What's the most exciting thing you've seen? What is your favorite thing you've seen there? 
Well, the research I started there um, working in the side of mostly with lizards. Then the research expanded also to the crocodiles. And in the last years, we've been working also with mammals, with birds, uh, even with dragonflies at the same time. So uh, the research broadened as usual. Uh, um, the more time we spend on the certain area, the research always broadens. So um, in terms of the most exciting, well, I'm biased, of course, I like a lot of crocodiles, and I think that they are an, an amazing, amazing animal. Um, of course, the, the the vipers are also very attractive. Yeah. And, um, and I remember when, when the first time I've seen a puff feather, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, vipers of Africa. Uh, and and it's a paradox again because it's one of the biggest, but I didn't saw it. There, I was walking in a very open landscape. I, I I never crossed my mind that it could be a place for puff feathers. And then there are these a series of rocks. I was wearing sandals at the time. It was very light, so it was very safe to walk around there in the light. But very awesome, and I was searching for lizards, geckos, nothing, nothing, never crossed my mind about the possibility of another. And uh, and I stepped, what, some 20 centimeters from the head of the animal. When I, when I saw them, I, that has the crowd of the pet, that red bread, roll of the end, and grains, but I could, and look like it, and bread, but in the end, another, another step more, and I would have stepped on his head, which, which, Possibly would not enter into that well. No, but no. Oh my God! So this the snake that kills most people in Africa every year. Yeah, and it's very extremely venomous. And that you're far away from the hospital, I guess that's even worse. It doesn't very big. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So medical facilities are always sparse, and and the time we've had it for this facility. In one of the trips to Mauritania, we've had one of the team members that was beaten, not by a viper, but by another snake. Um, it's a borrowing viper. Um, they are nocturnal. And, um, well, it was by accident, of, as, as usual, and things always happen by accident. And uh, it took, or at the time, the, we were some, uh, what, 70, 80 kilometers from the, uh, the closest city. But it would take some two days to get there. That's it. Because he was in the mountain and there's uh, very complicated roads. Yeah. And, and so and so we had we had some some stress there. Fortunately everything ended up to well. There was a, there was no problem but uh, but it was a very scary moment. Yeah, man, yeah. And, and and did the person have any effects? I guess yes, yes. So, and then there was a huge small in the hand and uh, the arm. And uh, he vomited, he released all body fluids. And for some two hours, we were seeing the, the, the clinic situation being more and more severe. And then it stabilized. Okay. And then fortunately it stabilized. And then it took some three days or so uh, for him to, to recover. Right. And we camped there for three days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for him to, to recover. It was a wow, tricky. That is a terrible situation. Here, but you've never been bitten. We no, no. Neither with scorpions. Uh, always paying attention. Always wearing gloves. Always at night wearing boots for sampling. It's very important. But um, the I think that the most important trick is always to look carefully where you step and more and ready to touch with a hand. Absolutely.
And what you just told me uh, reminded me, and it's so funny in the field, you said the viper, you only notice that in a It's funny how animals are not there until they're in there. Very clearly true, true. They, especially these vipers have an amazing camouflage pattern. They rely on camouflage to, to escape from predators, most of all, and also for not being detected from the prey or by the prey, sorry. Then, uh, and so, uh, neither, 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 or, or I was not, I was not expecting to see vipers there. But honestly, if I, even if I was sampling from vipers, it, the, the camouflage was so perfect. Indeed, it, and it, um, uh, uh, the whole body, uh, it was, it was, uh, um, mixed with the terrain, with the soil. You could not see exactly where the animal landed and where, uh, and, and with, and where, and where the soil started. So yeah, uh, you have to be very careful with those. And so that's hard to imagine when you see them in a zoo or in a captive situation that they can blend in so incredibly well, right? Yes, in zoos usually they are in. Well, in modern zoos they tend to reproduce a little bit the, the, the conditions of the habitats where species occur. So it's a bit more realistic, let's say. But um, but still, it's a huge difference between the between the seeing them in the zoo or the or in the wild. Well, and so what do you do uh, with URS months in uh, Mauritania and the desert? What? So most of the work that we weren't interested uh, and we are still interested, basically it's uh, to identify diversity. How many species are present? Because in comparison to other regions of the world, uh, deserts are poorly studied. Um, that usually if they have neglected because because diversity in desert in the assumed to be very low, so usually uh, researchers are not that much interested uh, in, in looking at them. So we want to know uh, which diversity is there, how many species. Is there a cryptic diversity in the sense that maybe two individuals look alike a lot, but from the genetic point of view, maybe they are totally distinct. So we want to identify these, these what we call cryptic diversity. And the other the aspect is once we know uh, how much diversity is there, where is it distributed? Which are the most richest areas that potentially could be allocated to conservation? And this is the third uh, line of research um, that I'm interested in, is in the definition of areas that can't be allocated for conservation. Right, right, right. Oh, that, and that brought you a lot of places. You once told me a story about you had to haggle with a uh, chief elder to get a skull of a of a crocodile is that right so uh, given that crocodile they are they are sacred of course but they are also or well, let me restart and so crocodiles uh, in Mauritania, especially in southern Mauritania, they are located in a transition area between the the modern islamic uh, um, and the religion well and to for the the african animistic religions and so and the animistic religions, uh, crocodiles are seen as sacred, but also as um, has a, a, an element that could give power to, to humans, uh, specifically sexual power. Ah. So that from time to time, they are uh, captured by the local sorcerers that are called the marabus, mm -hmm. and uh, and the, some organs are sold for the, for the for the mystical reasons. Okay. But, uh, and so we came to know that in one village there was uh, one of these marabus that contained some crocodiles there, and we had to negotiate to 
But what we were interested in was to obtain a bit of tissue sample. Yeah, we want tissue samples to do the genetic work, to do laboratory work. And so we, we did not want the, the, DNA, the animal for itself, but just a little bit of tissue. And it was necessary, some negotiation. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't want to reply. Did you want to say for any other reason? I think Awesome. So that is Dilsard. Uh, I know you have a lot more stories in there than, uh, than you've already told, but uh, we'll, we'll keep them for next time. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot for coming. If people want to know more about your research or want to follow you on social media, where should they go? We have uh, in Facebook, you can visit Biodeserts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in YouTube, the same. Uh, Biodeserts is the name of uh, the research group that I live. And you can find us uh, in, in YouTube and, and Facebook. And um, and also we have a website dedicated to the... Okay. So, so just search for Biodeserts. Biodeserts. Okay, so thank you very much. Thanks so much for the invitation. No worries.